Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cloud-Based Mayhem. A couple things of housekeeping here to kick us off. The first is I have some friends over at Akando, A-K-A-N-D-O.com. They make skydiving accessories and they sent me some stuff just to see if it would be applicable in our world, hang gliders, paragliders, that kind of thing. Uh, they make some really cool gloves. These are not warm gloves, but more like summer gloves, ground handing gloves or hike and fly type of thing, but really nicely put together. And they make sunglasses and a bunch of other stuff. Their sunglasses are really good for keeping the air out of your eyes, obviously, you know, like for skydiving. So you don't get a bunch of watery eyes and you can keep your vision. So I've always worn goggles when I fly paragliders, but these would be quite a bit slimmer and less weight. So take a look at those. They are not a sponsor of the show and not a sponsor of me. I'm just doing them a favor to let you know about them. If you also go to their website and want anything, if you put in the discount code GAVIN20, you'll get 20% off. So check that out. But thanks, guys, for sending that stuff over to me. The other bit of housekeeping is we did this show a couple weeks ago now, by the time this one gets released on COVID, and sat down with my sister and my good buddy, Terry O'Connor, who's an ER doc here in town. Our town remains one of the worst counties in the country. I think we're in the top five right now. And obviously that's per capita. It's not like New York here, but uh, it is certainly raging. And the, the scale of this thing is, is just mind boggling. We've it took us a 30 days to go from one death to a thousand in the US and took us two days to go from a thousand to 2000. So we seem to be on the exponential curve of that right now. And everything in that show, if you go back and listen to that, if you missed it, has been pretty accurate. Uh, my sister's been reporting on this since the very beginning, and Terry is certainly really in the thick of things. So I've been really encouraged to see that our community, our flying community, for the most part, has taken this really seriously. I'm not seeing anything on X contest these days, and I really appreciate that. So thank you, everybody, for thinking about the greater good, thinking about our healthcare workers. This thing certainly is serious, and I don't know when we're going to be able to return to the skies as we should be this time of year, but I think we need to, well, I don't think, we obviously need to be keep, we need to keep thinking about all of our healthcare workers and resources and just the greater good right now. And at some point we will. So I hope you're all enjoying this silent, quiet time to the best you can. I'm certainly enjoying my kitchen quite a bit lately and cooking and hanging out with my family. And I know many people are gonna be very negatively impacted by this. Certainly my business, my boat businesses, that's a whole, that's a pretty interesting story. The boat got to the Seychelles a few days ago and they've completely closed their borders. And so we can't even get the boat into the country. Obviously we're not gonna be operating trips for a very long period of time, but yeah, just certainly a very interesting time. So my guest today, uh, this is not dark whatsoever. On the opposite side of that, my guest today is Charlie Bowman. He has been flying hang gliders for 47 years. He started in 1973 along with his good friend Larry Tudor, who we had on the show a couple years ago. One of the more enjoyable and entertaining, fantastic talks we've had on the show. And by Larry's, Larry's insists that he was the first person, certainly in North America and maybe maybe the world, that figured out how to thermal. So he was one of the originals. He comes from a skydiving background. So Charlie skydived back in the 60s. He'd been skydiving for quite a while when he got into hang gliding in 73. And so it was kind of natural, that canopy experience. He just 
he picked it up faster than anybody else. And so we hear stories about his early days in Colorado and then the great migration out to Salt Lake and flying the point. And then now he lives out in Bend. He moved out there in 2000 and very recently, 2011, broke the state record, which still holds, flew 218 miles into Idaho. And he's still chasing it now. So that was, he was 64 at the time and now he's in his early 70s and he's still chasing it. So proper legend this was a really fun talk we talk about things like well, i think the best flight he talks about he ever had was flying thermal wave which i didn't even know was a thing so a lot of interesting topics a lot of great stories some fun retrieve stories and i think you're going to enjoy it so hang in there everybody please be safe continue taking the social distancing and all that seriously get out get some sun get some exercise to carry your immune system and some point we'll get through this thing thank you enjoy charlie i, I can't tell you i'm kind of i'm actually shaking a little bit i'm so excited to talk to you i spent a good portion of this afternoon talking to larry tudor on the phone and he has sent me a ton of questions and it just made me think about the fantastic podcast we had with him a couple of years ago. He and I have become really good friends. I didn't know that you two shared so much history. So uh, we, we just before we started talking there, if we've got, I got my math right, I said 50, but you've been flying for 47 years. Is that right? Yeah, this fall, it, it, it'll be 47 years. That's incredible. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you is, Larry said today that he is absolutely convinced that you are the first person, certainly in North America and maybe the world, that figured out thermaling. Can you take us back? Is that true? Well, uh, I, ha I had another person tell me that too, so it maybe it is. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we were flying standards at that time, and I had read – some sailplane magazines about them circling in thermals. And I go, well, all we're doing is just flying around. We're not really circling in thermals. And, and even though a standard had a terrible sink rate, we could, if we got a strong enough thermal, we could circle in it. So I started trying it and it worked. And, and you were in Colorado at the time? Yes. Yes. I was at, uh, one guy mentioned it at uh, Telluride when we were flying there. Uh, off the east side and uh, I just it was just getting natural to me and uh, he brought it up to me and I said well yeah I thought I'd try what the sailplanes were doing so that's what I started doing hey, and and you saw that it visibly with sailplanes or something you read about like were you guys you know you you could just see them flying around and, and getting up well, yeah, I don't think I had contact with sailplanes yet. I think I read it. I, I don't really remember. Probably read it in a magazine or something. And what was the, so give me, give me a time frame here. Is this 71, 72? Well, it would have been 73 because that's yep. when we were flying standards. Okay. That's the first, first type of glider that was really manufactured and they started mass producing and everybody was flying those things, those death traps. <laughs> <laughs> and Larry was talking about you guys would you would launch and 
you were the only one that would kind of do this move where you'd fly around the other side of the mountain and just do this like fly on the wall move because then you could relaunch again really quickly. Oh, yeah. At Lookout Mountain out of Golden, Colorado, there's a, a mountain with an M on it. And I really never wanted to go down. I hated to go down. So I figured out how to launch and then fly around the mountain. The mountain was a kind of a, a cone-shaped so it was easy to fly around it, and then you just fly right up the slope on the backside and land. It was an uphill landing and made it really easy. So I would take off, and if I wasn't getting up, I'd fly around and land because I didn't want to go down. And I could make like 10 flights a day and then not go down, although sometimes I should have kept working the lift because I didn't really need to land. But I went for the security of uh, not going down. And I'm sure you were doing this with uh, variometer and GPS. And well, they didn't even have GPS back then, but <laughs> I'm being facetious no, yeah. here. You didn't have anything, right? Uh, yeah, I did fly a lot without a variometer. And uh, I just used my eyesight, you know, on the side of the hill to, to judge that. Because, I mean, Larry talked about it, you know, watching you was like watching magic. I mean, he said just, you know, there was everybody else. And back then, these, you know, the hang community was huge. You know, this was, this was booming and everybody was doing it and everybody's out. But you were the one that was going up. Well, I figured out how to, how to get up and stay up and uh, land on top. Nobody had that figured out right away. But uh, it didn't take too long for everybody to catch up to my techniques. And like Larry said, he was watching me one day doing that and he i heard it on his podcast and he says i can do that <laughs> and he did <laughs> and i i understand you came from a skydiving background were you still jumping at this time and how, how did those two things coincide and did that give you do you feel like that gave you kind of some canopy knowledge and some air knowledge that maybe some of the other pilots didn't have oh definitely i felt like i could go fly a hang glider with no problem. I just had to learn how to take off because stalls were similar, you know, and it was very similar. I had, well, I had a, uh, they call them Ram Air parachutes. They were similar in, uh, in uh, not really well structure as paragliders are today. They, they didn't have the glide ratio, but they were big. They had these big cells in the front and they were Ram Air parachutes. And I, I flew those a lot. Uh, before I started hang gliding. So I, I uh, had a feel for it. And I didn't even take lessons in hang gliding. I just uh, jumped right into it. And the uh, funny thing is, <laughs> it was pretty wild in those days. We went up to the mountain one day, and I had this new glider, and I had to ask somebody to help me set up. before. <laughs> and I didn't really have any trouble flying how long did you skydive for? I got uh, seven years, 700 jumps, and it really taught me a lot about taking chances and equipment that was dangerous. And, well, you know, manufacturers will push their equipment even though it's dangerous. I just I just put my foot down on stuff like that. And in hang gliding, it was, it was happening all the time. And uh, I would try to avoid it or warn people to stay away from that glider because you know in the early days we had the dive problem 
and some stuff was worse than others. And until some gliders came out that had luff lines like the Moyes, and even better was Roy Haggard's uh, truncated tip, which was revolutionary, really. It, so those gliders had positive pitch moment in them, and they were so much safer. And, and then the gliders just got better from there as far as safety goes. And then the other thing that came along was the manu- Hang Glider Manufacturers Association, which there was so many people dying and having problems with gliders that the, the Manufacturer Association came along and said, we got to start testing these things. So they tested them for strength and they tested them for their pitch stability. And boy, from then on, the gliders just got so safe. It was a wonderful thing to happen. How'd you get the name Hawkman, Charlie Hawkman? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just stuck? <laughs> I flew pretty good in those days because uh, I think I was ahead of everyone. But, you know, I wasn't magical forever. <laughs> Larry came along and showed what magical was. You know, his, his flying was magical. The, the Dark Prince and, and the Hawkman, you, you guys sound like a heck of a team. What? I don't know where the Dark Prince came up from. I, I don't know if I ever heard of that. What does that mean? <laughs> I, you know, I remember I read so many articles about Larry before, before I actually talked to him. And I, you know what, now it's been a few years. I don't remember where that did come from. I got to check in with them that I think it was, you know, it was like this black magic, you know, that he was, he was quiet and he just would just crush uh, and i'd say uh, but i think it was kind of like mysterious i don't know if that's if, if I'm, i don't even know if that's even remotely accurate but that's yeah. how i remember it yeah he was he was a very quiet uh guy you know a real introvert and he could do he had the confidence to do everything on his own and fly by himself and and uh, he was really smart uh really good chess player uh and he was lightweight I have to say, I think that helped him a whole bunch. He had a really good climb rate, really good. Always had a really good climb rate. It's hard to keep anywhere near him. Tell me, tell me about the the culture back then. Uh, you know, what what was it like in Telluride and Golden, and you know, because there was a lot of people participating back then. I mean, it just must have been. It sounds to me very much like the Wild West. It was just. Like and like you said, a lot of carnage too. But yeah, uh, since it was a new sport and uh, everybody was interested in it, Hangler pilots were kind of like gods. I mean, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but <laughs> it, it was a, a really exciting time, and we had lots of partying. We were really young and had tons of energy. Uh, you couldn't stop me from going flying. I, I was almost flying every day and. Just about almost any condition, but I had some background in skydiving, and I knew you could die doing this, and, and so I, I did have my limits, although I have too many stories to tell you probably about uh, close calls. I don't want to get into death too much. I like to do the positive stuff. First. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't want. I don't want to either. No, it's a, we got plenty of positive stuff to talk about. Um, well, but be, but just before we do, I did promise Larry that I would ask you about the Shan, Chantel comp or the Chandel comp. Okay, uh, that's one of the gliders that was super dangerous. Uh, I stayed away from it. I knew. 
from what I was reading, all the guys that were dying on it, I think 13 guys died. And what happened Whoa. on the Shondell was it would get into a, a steep enough dive that it would just, they call it a luff dive. It, it would not come out. It would just, you'd be going in at whatever, 70 miles an hour or whatever. And you couldn't stop it. And we didn't have parachutes back then. They did modify it later, so it wasn't quite as dangerous. But it, it did have a little better performance than most gliders, so it was popular. But yet, it was you know extremely dangerous. Did he? T- did Larry tell you about that, or did he just no, want to hear my? No, opinion? he just wanted to hear your stories. He he just kind of thought it'd be fun to hear about things like the the Telluride Airman's Rendezvous and the fellow feathers and you know these just uh, i I'm, i've been reading hang glider books lately there's this the one that uh tim delaney sent me uh, the eagle's perch eagle's nest it is the funniest book i've ever read it is so great but it talks about this this era of uh, mostly you guys flying in, in colorado well well tell you right uh mate that they had every year was just spectacular because this the surroundings are just so beautiful and the town is like a old mining town with boardwalks and you just stroll up and down the streets at night and stop in it walk into the bars and say hi to these people and then walk on to the next one and it was the atmosphere was just incredible uh, it was you can't i doubt if it's like that now but i i don't know i haven't been there for quite a while and then and then the meets would be, you know, off. Uh, well, part of the time it was on a lower launch, which wasn't too exciting. But if they went up high off Gold Hill, uh, you know, I think they're launching at twelve thousand feet, and so you better run, run fast. <laughs> and the landing area was not good either; it was nine thousand feet, so that's really thin air for an hang glider to land in, and so you had to be pretty good at it. And uh, other than that, thermals were strong. You could fly all around the canyon and look at these 14,000-foot peaks. Uh, it was really beautiful. And at night, you go party at the bars, and it, it was a really wonderful atmosphere. Wow. Uh, and, and back then, are you still getting up super tall? You know, were you had you guys kind of figured out, uh, you know, you obviously figured out thermaling at that point, but it, were you getting up? Were you using oxygen and that kind of thing? I think we didn't. No, we didn't. Early comps, we were getting extreme headaches when we come back down, and <laughs> it wasn't real good. And then, at one, what point did you guys start to, you know, have reserves? And I, I can't imagine flying with with just no reserve. There, I mean, there obviously wasn't any SIV. It must have been a very naked feeling, or was it? You guys, I mean, there, you didn't have any. Didn't have any well, reason to think of them because they didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't. We didn't know what we were missing at first, and then the idea came up. Yeah, we got to have a parachute. And Bill Bennett made this thing called a ten line. We called it a ten line. It was small. It wasn't very strong, but it's better than nothing. And we snapped those up like crazy. And then, not long after that, somebody started making uh, regular parachute type parachutes. You know, the conicals. 20 gore conicals and then the bags weren't designed that well at first they had to change where the uh handle was and relate or the where the rubber bands were in relation to the handle so it wouldn't accidentally load it and so we got better bags and we got swivels 
And that's about all it took. And then, of course, later on, they developed a PDA, pulled down Apex, which was better. And then they came out with the LAR and the Quantum, which are just beautiful shaped parachutes, as you probably know. And so anyway, we, we snapped up those parachutes right away as soon as they were coming out. Was there kind of, was there instruction in schools at this point or was it still all everybody's teaching them themselves? You mean as far as just learning how to take off and fly? Yeah, yeah. I think there always was schools, but I don't think the schools were, I mean, they just got better and better. They, I don't know if they were that good to start with, but they got better and better. And was hang gliding in this period, was it your job? Is it, is it how you lived or were you just kind of the camp for Yosemite version of, of hang gliders? You just, you guys living out of your cars and dirt bagging it and flying as much as you can. Uh, yes and no, I was, uh, I flew as much as I could. I didn't really have time to work and I did work, uh, building houses part-time and the rest of the time I was pretty much flying most of the time. And then I started going to some comps and getting sponsored a little bit. Yeah, I flew most of the time living <laughs> in my living in my van. <laughs> and I understand you and Larry, I don't know if that was together, but in your in your post that you put up about you know your record flight in 2011, which we got a long way to get before we get there, but um that you guys were living in Salt Lake for a while. You went out you went from Colorado out to Salt Lake? Yes, I think uh there was a mass migration from Colorado to Salt to the Salt Lake area. I can't, a lot of pilots from Colorado just moved right out there because that was the pretty much the mecca at the time. I mean, there was there must have been fifteen flying sites around the Salt Lake area. Although most of the flying I did was at either the point of the mountain at Inspiration or at Heber because they were all the closest ones. And were were competitions kind of a big deal back then? I mean, you had you had a lot of comps where you guys traveling all around. We going to the Owens and going to Aspen and yeah, I, I mostly just went to the the closest ones. I was I wasn't I didn't have enough money to be running around to meets all the time. I just went to whatever ones I thought I might like. I mean, Larry he was sponsored. He started going to a lot of comps, and uh, he did well. And he was more interested in breaking the record world records though and he concentrated on those a lot in the summer what was kind of your focus well i did focus on uh state records quite a bit um and then when i did start going to the owens valley i was hoping to do a world record but you have to get conditions too and i i really i didn't live out there in the summer like larry did and you know pick the best days and, and go for it that's what you really need to do he would take the whole summer off for at least a month or two and then have a driver and everything for, to prepare him for that task. <laughs> he was very goal-oriented goal for that. And he broke a lot of records, too. Yeah, he broke a ton of records. Gosh, when he was listing them off, it was just, dong, and then I did this, and then I, now it is, it's amazing. It's amazing history. <laughs> yes, it is. And so Salt Lake was your was your home for a bit would you stay there in the winter too or would you would you go down to other places to fly florida and arizona and that kind of thing not too much i i uh, would just stay there in the winter uh in uh salt lake area and then i moved out here in uh 2000 out to bend yes and was that to follow flying 
Yes, kind of, but I also wanted to get away from uh, the population was just booming in Salt Lake. It was getting too much for me. And they were building all these houses on the point of the mountain and just wrecking the place. <laughs> so I said, I'm leaving. Have you, I mean, when you started flying in 73 until now, has it been pretty solid all the way through? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, pretty, pretty solid. I mean, I, I do less flying every year just because I'm older, you know, and I just, I started going more for quality uh, days. You know, I'd go out there when, oh, yeah, it looks like a pretty good, pretty good day today. And the cumies are puffy and beautiful. I'm going. But uh, I didn't just go out there uh, on any old day. So maybe only once a week now. All right. Well, let's, 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 let's check more of the, of the history here. You also wanted me to ask you about a time you flew out over the Uintas and landed, landed so deep that you had to bring your dog in to get your glider. Okay, I had two flights down the Uintas that I thought were pretty cool. Uh, the one, the one where <laughs> that one in uh, that I got stuck in the snow was uh, in kind of in the late spring, and it was yeah, I think it was in April, and it was I flew from Inspiration over to the Uintas, and I thought I could just cross over and continue to the northeast. But I ended up landing on some pretty high terrain on in really deep snow. And uh, I think that flight was like only 80 miles or 85 miles or something. And I packed up the glider and I walked out, but I was post-holing. And it was just killing me. There was so much effort to walk, walk in this deep snow. And I was just trying to get down the mountain. I was walking down the north face and trying to stay on a road. And I came to this sign that pointed two different directions, and I w wasn't sure which one, and I picked the wrong one. didn't take me down to town where I thought I could be okay. So I had to spend the night, and it was pretty bad. My legs were soaking wet from the hike, and it was way below freezing that night. So I put, the, uh, I put my mittens on my feet. I took my shoe, wet shoes and socks off and put my mittens on my feet which really helped out my feet. And I stuck my feet in the harness, tried to make a bed out of it as best I could. But uh, it was so cold, I was shaking all night. And I guess it's a good thing that I didn't get worse than shaking because then you're hyperthermic and maybe die. But so I was shaking all night. <laughs> I didn't go to sleep. And I was going, oh, please, come up, sun. I just wanted to see that sun start coming up, and it just wouldn't come up. Finally, it came up. I jumped out, put my wet shoes and tennis shoes and socks on. And once I started hiking down, it, my feet got warm, and I was fine. And meanwhile, my wife had already called search and rescue. <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, called her up, and, and she came got me. And then... We had to go back and get the glider. So uh, I, me and a friend, and we and my wife got on some free hill skis, which I hadn't done before, and this was a neat experience. It was a couple of weeks later, so the more snow had melted. I rigged up a glider container with uh, skis on the bottom. I thought we'd put the glider in that and and bring my husky along to pull, and he did. He pulled it and. <laughs> We skied back and had a good time and got the glider out. Uh, the other flight was 
a lot more successful. I uh, took the uh, straight east route. I, my intention was to fly down the Uintas, uh, which are, you know, high peaks. I think they're up to like 13,000 or so. And there was a nice cloud street on it. It was pretty gutsy, though, because when you get on the ridge, there's all there's all these spines running out north and south, but they're five, ten miles long, you know, so there's no place to land in those canyons. Every time I'd start losing altitude, I'd, I'd fly out of spine to the south until I got up again, and then I'd go back into the main ridge. And I kept doing that until I got to the uh, – maybe it's Green River. Yeah, Pizza. Green, Green River just passed uh... – just past uh, Flaming Gorge. Yeah, so I landed in the parking lot of the Pizza Hut, and that's, <laughs> and that's where I waited for my wife to come get me. That was over 100 miles. <laughs> you guys in your Pizza Huts, uh, you remember from Larry's show, He, they, you know, when he was flying from uh, Hobbs in New Mexico, when he got the big record, you know, when he went, I think it was 300. Uh, yeah, that's when he went 300 miles. He called it before he'd never been to this place that he flew in Oklahoma or something. And, and he, but before he took off, he said, I'm going to land at the pizza hut. And he did. Yeah. He, he was really good at calculating all that stuff. He knew what the wind direction was and he'd get on a map and figure out where he wants to get to. And, and he could do that really well. Tell me some more. What, what's a story that, you know, when you're sitting around with the grandchildren that, ah, uh, you know, there was this one time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know if they'd understand it, but <laughs> one of my favorite flights is uh, the thermal wave that I got into at Pine Mountain. It was totally different than anything I'd ever run into, and it was just, you know, mesmerizing. It was, and I had a camera on my wing, and I was shooting glories uh, on the cloud that was below me. And I was above it in a thermal wave, and I, I was getting 2,000 feet over the cumulus. And you know, this might happen on the coast or something, but in the dry desert, that just is something that just never happens. The thermals were pretty good. They were setting up, and apparently the wind hits the line of thermals and just gets pushed up and over and forms a wave. And the uh, wind was also increasing at higher altitude, and it must have been unstable, too, because the, I was just flying in this wave that was so super smooth. It was just so much fun. And I had to dive down to get to the cumulus because I wanted to take pictures of the glory. So I would, have, I would make passes on the side of this cumulus and take pictures of the glory, and then it was like ridge running. I, I'd have to turn around and do a... 360 and, and make another pass on the cloud <laughs> that was the most that, that kept me busy otherwise i would have just been floating up high in this super smooth wave lift and gary also is the one that told me it was a it was a thermal wave and uh i actually had that happen to me again but it wasn't as strong uh the next year and both times it was in the fall uh, i guess when waves or more waves are forming i actually could see a uh, wave cloud on the uh, cascades that evening so it was a sign that there was waves forming although there was no cloud i was in no cloud up there above the above the cumulus there was nothing there but wonderful air how, how high do you think you could have gone in that 
I was getting about 2,000 over. I think 12,000 was the top of that. Ooh. And the queues were about 10,000. I don't, I've never heard this term. I, I didn't know that you could get wave off of thermals. I didn't either. <laughs> wow. It was brand new to me. And the weird thing is nobody else could get up there. Really? They were, yeah, they were getting, you know, eight or eight, eight, five or so. But I guess I broke through and got into the upper stuff because there's no trouble staying up there once you got up there. But I was telling those guys down there, get your butt up here. It's wonderful. <laughs> and they did. Of course, you know, when you hear that kind of stuff and you're struggling, you're, you're going, ah, oh, shut up. Leave me alone. <laughs> are are you still flying with any of the guys you flew with back in the seventies? Well, that would have been uh, in Colorado. I don't think any of them are out here. Oh well, except for Tingy, Mike Tingy. I flew with him for a while. Uh, he's a great pilot. Uh, he was from Colorado, and then he moved to Utah, just like me and Larry. And he came here. And uh, he kind of retired from flying. He's still in, he's in Lakeview right now. But as for the rest of that group, uh, no, I don't think any of them are here. And you, yeah, he, he had the, he had the record in Utah from Cedar City, 157 miles. I'm just looking at your notes now. And then you broke that record in 93 from Heber into Wyoming, 178 miles. I mean, you guys were going so far. Yeah, that was, what, 93? Yeah. That was uh, really, I liked that flight. <laughs> you were going out into the Wyoming flats? Yeah, about the only obstacles were all those mines that they have out there, you know, and they're, they got fences around them and stuff, so you got to be careful. There's a lot of those out there. Uh, other than that, there's pretty small ridges uh, that, you know, are popping thermals off them. And you really don't, I didn't really figure out exactly where to catch thermals out there, but I usually go for a little mountain or a ridge and, uh, I'd stay along, I was staying along interstate 80 and I landed along interstate 80. So, oh, I got to tell you what happened to me after I landed, I was packed up and walking down the freeway it was dark or really close to dark and I was trying to hitchhike and then, you know, a truck would go by me. And then about five seconds later, I hear all this noise and that truck had rolled over on my side of the highway and it was, was rumbling along on the side of the truck, just skidding along, making all kinds of noise. And apparently they fell asleep. I walked over and looked at them and there was already a bunch of cars stopped, but that could have rolled over on me. <laughs> Holy cow. Can you imagine flying 178 miles in a hang glider and then getting rolled over on by a truck on a freeway? <laughs> There'd be something yeah, wrong with that, that hole. <laughs> isn't that terrible? Now, in that in that article in the Ben paper, when you broke the record in 2011, so that's just a few years back here, you flew, 100, you flew 218 miles from Pine into Idaho. And you got to go farther, man. You got to get to catch them next time. And we will throw you the best party ever. <laughs> I would. No one's ever flown even from Boise to here. So that would be, that's one of our real goals. Uh, Nate Scales did a pretty nifty flight from Boise kind of around the corner, but no one's ac actually ever gotten here. But that's an awfully long flight. I, I've studied the map and um, I, 
trying to figure out the route to stay out of the airspace, you know, to get that far. But on the flight that I I made, I was worried about going east because I didn't know the terrain. I know it's rough. I know there's a lot of mountains. I didn't know where I could land. And that was where, that's the direction I should have gone. I would have had a longer flight. But I uh, took the easy route and I turned southeast and went down toward Middleton. And so I only gained 18 miles in that last hour where I was doing 40 miles an hour. So you were kind of crosswind at that point? Yeah, yeah. So I really didn't like the idea of heading that way because it just, I know it's pretty rugged. Are you talking about like, instead of going Southeast, sticking with kind of going through Baker City and, and, you know, kind of South of the Wallawas? Oh, I can't remember the name of the town, but it's straight East from, uh, Ontario. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I, for, I forget the name of it. And the highways don't go East either. They, they run into mountains and turn South. Yeah. North, exactly. You know? Yeah. So, so it makes it really hard for cross country. I mean, maybe I could do it. I just didn't know. I just didn't have that memorized. (laughs) (laughs) My mistake. Yeah. I mean, that's Bill Belcourt always said that, you know, that often the big flights, uh, they end because you've, you don't have a plan anymore. (laughs) You know, you you got to have a plan for those big days. You've got to keep, you you know, you got to still be thinking ahead and have that kind of mapped out. And then suddenly you're in territory where you're just like, whoa, (laughs) what do I do with this? Then you've kind of lost the advantage. Well, the rest of that story turned out really well. I flew southeast along the uh, I-84 and I started flying faster and faster because I just wanted to burn off altitude. It was getting late. And so I just kept gliding fast until I had to land. And after I landed, uh, there was a, a flatbed truck came out with a bunch of kids and dogs and people, and they had all been celebrating the Labor Day weekend. So they uh, picked me up and took me over to their fire pit party and fed me, gave me beer, and then I slept in uh, their motorhome. <laughs> <laughs> so that was easy. And uh, I stored my glider in their garage. And then I, they gave me a ride to the bus station in Ontario. And then I took a ride to Burns, back to Burns, which I had a truck stored there for just uh, retrieval purpose. And I drove it back to get my glider and then back to Bend. So it, it was an extra two days of retrieval. Wow. I was just about to ask you what the greatest retrieve story you have. Is that is that it? That, that's an epic. Oh, yeah. That's a self-retrieve. That's, a, that's an epic. Yeah. That's, <laughs> so you, wait a minute, you put that truck way out in Burns in advance, thinking that that was where you're going to fly? Oh, I, I figured that was, wasn't really far enough. I mean, I, <laughs> I but, but I had some, I had a person there that would took care of it. So that's where I left it. Oh, you mean you would just and, do this in the summer? You just leave a truck out there in the summer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just for that purpose. Oh and, my uh, God, man, you're like my say, hero. You just leave a truck. Like, <laughs> the- well, it was, it was a pretty much a piece of junk, but it, it ran and it had a rack. And so it, it served the purpose. Yeah. And, uh, I was thinking, you know, on a day where I struggled to get the burns and I didn't think I could go that much farther. I could just land there, get the truck and drive home and, and not have that extra retrieval time. Okay. But I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> and how how many hours was that flight? And how long were you in the air? Uh, 
that one was, uh, I think, six. Okay. Now, these, I got to mention, these days are pretty short. That was on September 4th. Oh, so wow. the days are really short. And uh, I, I could have taken off earlier. That's, I probably could have had another hour or two earlier, but it, I just, it just didn't happen that day. So now, I got to, I, I got to put some things in perspective here for our audience, because, you know, you and I are talking about Oregon and Bend and Pine and that all makes sense. But a lot of the people listening, that won't make any sense. They don't have any idea of the kind of terrain you're, you're flying over, you know, for when I first moved to Sun Valley in 2012, you know, I, I always thought that our quote unquote tiger country was, was pretty serious. You know, we, we often fly from here pretty deep into Montana and, you know, to me, it just seemed like, wow, this is incredibly remote. And it's, you know, on a global scale, you know, compared to the Alps, it's insanely remote. You know, there's, there's, there might be some dirt roads, but you can, you can land in a lot of places and, you know, there's hunters and there's fishermen and there's people camping and, you know, the right times of year. And, you know, that put it this way, I've never had a huge walk out, you know, there, somebody will come by, you know, that might be a couple cars in a day, but somebody will come by. Now, the first time I really got a piece of bend and and pine mountain, I went out and flew. You guys have that fly in about that time of year. It's the first weekend in September every year. And I came out there and Matt Hensey and I had an amazing flight out. We landed at the base of the Steens. So it was Oh yeah. Nothing like what you did. Oh, it was good. about 210k or or something. So it, whatever, yeah, 160 miles, something 150 miles, and uh, I could not believe how remote that part of Oregon is. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah, there's nobody out there. Nobody. And You're flying over the Malheur, and it's just whoa. It's it, it was dizzying how vacant and there's nothing out there and it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere exactly it <laughs> those highways aren't going anywhere they're you you're in tough shape out there and but no but also they don't go anywhere but there's also no traffic i, I mean i didn't see no. a car all day no there isn't tell, tell me another retrieve story so you've got the one you know so your dog towed your your wing out once uh, another time it took two days uh if you got some other interesting retrieve stories because that's that's often kind of the most interesting part of our sport isn't it is getting home yeah that was the hardest one coming out of the unit in all that snow that, that was definitely the hard one uh, and i wanted to mention that some, that i was on interstate 80 one time after a long flight and uh, usually you don't expect interstate people to stop and pick you up but this one guy he was a local out there and he stopped and i, I said well, how come you stopped me he says i want to see what you're doing out here <laughs> <laughs> so that that was a ride that was a got me a ride to a, a phone at least anyway i, I mean and for uh, it's also i think so easy for us to forget you know now we're flying with in reaches or spots and you know, cell phones. I mean, cell phones are still pretty useless in a lot of the places you and I fly. I mean, once yeah. I get out of catch them, they're, they're totally useless. But, and I know in Oregon, I remember that day, I didn't have cell service all day. So I, I don't think they're doing much for you, but you know, back in the day, I mean, what you had radios, I guess, right? We didn't really have radios uh, except for CBs, which were real big and bulky. 
Mm-hmm. So I never flew with one. And then we started uh, getting ham radios, which you could access off cell tires. Some people had those. And then from there, things just got better as far as radios go. But yeah, we were pretty primitive back in those days. And we didn't, yeah, we couldn't call. We had to get to a pay phone or something to call people to come after us. <laughs> people listening now are like, a pay phone? What the hell's that? <laughs> you, know, you know, I was in Yellowstone just recently, and they have a pay phone there. I thought it was the neatest thing I know. to call my yeah. Call my wife from a pay phone, and she really loved it. And I just threw about two dollars worth of quarters in, and you get three minutes, and <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's like it's like using a satellite phone these days. It's so expensive. <laughs> that's that's because they don't have cell phone service in Yellowstone. I know. Thank God. Oh, it's so isn't that nice? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yellowstone's a, a really really special place, even with all the people. It's it's still just amazing I, I i forgot my question when we when i read that article from ben uh there was a really cute piece about your wife and you know it asked her you know are, are you scared about this old guy flying, flying you know 218 miles into idaho from from basically you know central or kind of west central oregon and she said oh no no he's he's always been fine he's never been hurt uh, he'll, he'll i know he's going to get home somehow <laughs> I'm not quoting that yeah, exactly, true. but it sounds like you guys have a pretty special relationship. She's been chasing you in the sky for 47 years. Uh, yeah, she doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she, she quit. She quit a long time ago. I mean, I can call her and beg her and she'll come after me, but that's only after after I fly. <laughs> she won't go up and do a regular retrieval anymore. No, that's that. She's she's smart. I I talked my wife into that one time uh, about three years ago, and she chased us out across uh, the Idaho flats and out in the uh, Snake River Basin, just down the freeway. It wasn't even that huge of a day. And I got back in the car, and she said, "I just want you to know, I will never do this again." <laughs> <laughs> and she yeah, held true to that it's, promise. It's, it's pretty hard to get somebody to drive for you more than once or twice. <laughs> That's yeah. true. It's, That's true. If you were writing a book or something, that would that'd be good for somebody like that, you know, or they had something to do. <laughs> okay, so 2011, you, help me out with the math. What, how old were you then when you did that flight? Uh, 64. 64, okay. So you're you're butting up on, no, you're, you're yeah, you're over 70 now and still, it's still psyched on it still still chasing it i still fly yeah i just had a nice flight with uh, patrick cruz here and uh last saturday we got up to ten thousand and uh had nice landings and uh and then we got stuck trying to get our car down (laughs) (laughs) i had to tow him out with my truck (laughs) and it was a little extra hours all but we had a fun time we we were wearing our our masks, uh, our virus masks, and wiping down our hands and stuff, and uh, we had a, a very good time. Uh, good for you. Yeah, I I appreciate that. Our our community seems to be taking the the social distancing pretty seriously. That's that's good. Um, what do you credit? I mean, that's a long time. You so you 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 know you did you skydive for seven years. You've been flying hang gliders for forty seven years. I understand you've never had an accident. 
I've had accidents, but I haven't broken any bones. (laughs) (laughs) Those aren't accidents then. (laughs) Yeah, right. You can walk away. It's a good landing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially on a hang glider. You guys are going fast. Yeah, yeah. We have faster landings. We dread the no wind landings, that's for sure. Yeah. If we got if we got five, we're okay. And, and, and what are you flying these days? It's an Atos VR. It's a rigid wing with like a 44-foot span, I think it has. Wow. And Yeah, it's, a, it's something else. So back, back to the question, though, Seth, what do you credit? Okay, you've had some accidents, but you haven't broken any bones. What, do you, and what has your approach been, you, thought, you think, that has kept you safe that whole time? Well, you know, I have this theory that good pilots always are doing something to save themselves. You know, no matter how bad the situation is, there's always something you can do to help yourself out. And uh, I think I think luck might be a little bit of it, but you do have to you know, know what you're going to do in emergencies and do something. Don't give up. Mm. Here's a question. Would you do anything differently? Oh, yeah. My God. <laughs> I wouldn't have taken off on a bunch of those flights. <laughs> I, wouldn't have attempt- I wouldn't have attempted that flight for sure. Hmm. Okay, I'll tell you another story. <laughs> I was in Boulder, Colorado, and they had this rock that they were jumping off of. I think they, I don't know what they call it, maybe the Boulder. The wind was uh not too bad Uh, i thought i could take off tandem and uh the wind started decreasing and i really didn't want to go but this girl forced me into doing it (laughs) (laughs) charlie (laughs) isn't that terrible i don't believe it for a second (laughs) uh yeah i was really stupid and um so the wind was decreasing and when I think back about it, I go, I don't think we'd have made it if even if we'd have launched. And what happened is I went, I had a wire guy holding the wires in front and there wasn't any room to run or anything. You just take a step and you're going. And so I said, clear. And the guy didn't get out of the way. He just laid down on the rocks. So the controller was hitting him. I was trying to launch and the controller was hitting him. And I tried to lunge again and hit him again. And finally, we just tipped over, nose down and bounced down this, I don't know, at least 40 feet to the ground, maybe more. And so I was, the good thing was I was pogo sticking down. It was hitting my wings, one wing, another wing, and they were breaking, <laughs> but it was uh, taking the fall. And so we got down to the bottom and I didn't get hurt at all. The girl got a really big uh, hematoma on her hip, which was not, you know, that healed. And so I had a broken glider. That's the worst of it for me. Let's talk about some good stuff. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about good stuff. No, I did. I, that that's good stuff. You fell down a forty foot cliff and walked well, yeah. away. That's great. Well, we had a good. <laughs> yeah, we had a good outcome. Uh, here's another one. Uh, along with that flight, the the one we were just talking about, the record flight. I have to tell you that I was 
pretty much thinking about going cross country because it was uh, you know a paraglider meet and there was going to be there was all these paragliders flying so I could see how the air was and before I got set up I could see they were doing pretty well you know like a thousand over so I was in a hurry and I got up to launch. And it went dead. <laughs> All the paragliders were sitting around, and nobody was in the air. So uh, apparently there was a sync cycle, and so I got up to launch and just got ready and for the next cycle. And and uh, while I was standing there, something came in. I didn't even see anything coming in, but it put my nose on the ground, my tail straight up in the air, and just held it there for a few seconds. I thought I was going to be spinning around or picked up or something. And then it was gone. And I looked around. I go, what was that? I'd never had that happen before. And I think it was just a little tiny twister with no dust. And it was enough to pick the glider up, but it wasn't big enough to even spin it. I just set the glider back down and went, oh, well, I'll, there's some wind coming in. I'll get ready to go. And there was a guy standing around pointing at my nose. And... uh I just kind of ignored him going, uh, okay, I'm launching now. And he was trying to tell me about my nose cone was coming off. <laughs> and I was in such a hurry, I launched anyway. And I didn't even notice it till later I looked up and the nose cone was half off and just kind of dangling, causing all kinds of drag. Although I didn't notice anything different during the flight, but that was another case where I was in a big hurry and I shouldn't have been. And that was the one where you went big? Yeah. That that was that was the record flight? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh well, don't need that today. When you think back, you know, some 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 flight that just really still makes you smile. Yeah, I gotta I gotta tell you about you were talking about retrievals. Uh, my previous record flight was 196 miles. It was to Ontario. That was in uh, August of 2006. So that was uh, four years before. Yep. I, I did a, I did 196 miles, and that was to Ontario. Well, I landed there, and some uh, people saw me right away, gave me a ride to their barn. I put my glider in the barn, and they gave me a ride to a motel. But I had forgotten my wallet. <laughs> it was in my truck. And so I had to call my wife, and she gave a credit card number to the motel, so I had a place to stay. And then I had been I was working at Columbia Aircraft, so uh, I knew some pilots there. I, one of them came out in the morning and picked me up at Ontario Airport and gave me a ride back to Bend. Whoa. And then I, yeah. That's a long then ride back. Yeah, then I had to drive my truck all the way back and get my glider and then go back. <laughs> so that was pretty pretty nice uh, retrieval there. That's terrific. Yeah, that that's a goodie. <laughs> oh, that flight. Yeah, that flight's only about an hour or so. I mean, that's <laughs> 200 miles by car, but airplane, that's that thing goes about 150, I think. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a sexy retrieve when somebody picks you up in a plane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it is <laughs> wow uh any any real fond memories from you know back when back when things were just kicking off back in the 70s or in the 80s that uh you know again back to what i call the wild west days i don't know what you guys call them yeah crazy days uh 
you know, I remember once we went off at night off Green Mountain, and I'm surprised nobody got hurt doing that. <laughs> and some guys were on drugs. <laughs> uh, we lucked out on that one. We just had to fly, I guess, you know. <laughs> it was pretty dark, too. <laughs> it was, is this where you had some cars down in the LZ with, with headlights on, or was it just totally dark? I don't think we had cars down. I don't remember the landing, but it was, you know, it was easy to land standards. That was a good thing. Those were so easy to just stick anywhere because, mm. they, you know, they only had a four to, four to one glide and, you know, it, and they had a big surface area. So they were easy to flare and land. That was the best thing about those. But since you mentioned headlights, that reminds me of a flight in uh, California, Crestline. Yeah. yeah, Marshall and Crestline. Uh, or Pine Flats, I think it was. Uh, me and Sean Dever were flying there pretty late, and apparently we didn't know much about it, but there was a convergence at night there a lot. And on, uh, he landed, and I really had trouble getting down, and so it was getting darker and darker because the convergence coming through. And, uh, the, I mean, the lift was good because of the convergence, and he did get the car out with the lights on, and that really did help me land. <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite place to fly oh, all these you know you you cut your teeth in colorado and you spent a bunch of time out in salt lake but i i know you've you know you've done you you did the comp thing and uh you and larry were doing some traveling around and you know you ended up out in bend i know you've flown all over the place but do you have a do you have a favorite spot i don't know if i do really there's a lot of good places i i really haven't been to that many places compared to a lot of people the only thing is, if you go to a beautiful place, it's usually pretty turbulent. Yeah. You know, there's big mountains, big mountains. I I, I prefer scenic places. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I remember in the old days when I go cross country a lot, I, I didn't really know the train I was going over all the time. And I, I used to say one of the neatest thing about cross country was seeing new scenery flying and sometimes flying low over the train and seeing different animals and different birds and, and everything was just magical because you'd never seen it before and you probably never will again. Yeah. It, it, that, that was half the reason I flew. I, I think back in the old days was for that scenery and the new, the new terrain that I was flying over. Charlie, so awesome to talk to you. I've just been dying to do this for a long time. I know you've been really busy, but uh, this was really special for me. And I know very special for our listeners to hear about your 47 years. And we only very barely touched the surface, I know. But so hopefully we can do a, we can do a, a follow-up or something. But I really appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for sharing your time. Yeah, it's really, really nice talking to you, Gavin. And uh, I'll, I'll be talking to you again. Thanks a lot. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Charlie. Talk soon. One quick clarification about the show. Charlie and I talked about the Shandell Comp. This is a glider that was very prone to luff dives that killed a lot of people before they stopped manufacturing it in a single year. Charlie said 13. And later he reached out, after we stopped recording, he reached out and said he preferred to pull that comment because he didn't know if that was an accurate number or not. It's a great segment, so I wanted to leave it in. I reached out to Larry Tudor, 
who was pretty familiar with that whole scene back then as well. And he's reached out to Mark Winsheimer, who really understands the history and was very involved with Shandell. And the number is somewhere between 10 and 14 that year. And that was in a year that 40 hang gliders died nationwide. So certainly that one wing was problematic. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show. I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show Thank you.